Well, good morning. Welcome here, everyone, to Ebenezer. Whether you are joining us in person here in our facility or if you're joining us online, we are so glad that you are with us here, and uh, it is a privilege to, to be with you this morning. For those of you who are maybe newer to us, uh, my name is Wes. And I have the privilege of serving as part of the pastoral team here at the church, uh, specifically overseeing the area of college and career ministries. Uh, but I've also been, uh, had the privilege uh, to join the, the preaching and teaching team uh, starting this fall. And so it's a, a great honor to be on staff here. If you've been tracking with us over the last number of weeks, we have been going through our series in the book of Joel. And my hope and my prayer is that it has been an encouragement to you. I hope that it's been a challenge and uh, has strengthened your faith um, as we have opened up this word. You know, it's a little bit of an obscure Old Testament book. I know for me even sometimes it's like you're scrolling your book and you're like, where's Joel again? It's like it's a very small book, kind of in the thick of it in the Old Testament. But it's just been so encouraging through the different messages to see even though this is a, it's, it's a lesser known book of the Old Testament, it's incredible how relevant its message is for us today. I've been deeply moved and encouraged by the messages and my hope and prayers that you would be the same way this morning. Before I would begin, I would just like to pray and I would just ask if you would join me in prayer as well. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your, your presence in our lives and your presence here with us now. And Holy Spirit, we ask you and we pray that as we open up the scriptures now, your holy, inspired, authoritative word, we ask that as we open this Holy Spirit that you will direct our minds and direct our hearts to the person and the work of Jesus, that we may be saved, that we may be sanctified, that we may be set free, and that we may be empowered by your spirit to live the lives that you call us to. And God, I confess, I cannot do this. My words cannot make that happen, but you, Holy Spirit, by your word, you can do that. And so I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you might do that in me and through me this morning, not for my sake, but for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your gospel moving forward in our lives and through our lives, God. And so I ask this, Lord, for your honor and your glory. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Two weeks ago, Pastor Cal shared with us the first half of Joel chapter 2 and went through that message, and today we're going to be looking at the second half of Joel chapter 2. And in the beginning of that passage in Joel 2, there is uh, a very bleak and a very ominous language used to describe uh, what Joel sees as this coming day of the Lord. Uh, in the book of Joel, the people have been devastated by crop failure and are in the midst of a famine, and yet at the same time, they now see that there is this invader potentially coming to just wipe them out as a people. And so they are in the midst of incredibly tense and trying times. And Joel 2.3, he describes it this way, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. 
Joel here is describing a potential invasion from this foreign army against God's people. And it's a picture of just total and complete devastation. It just seems utterly inevitable at this point as well. It just seems like, well, that's it. There's no hope. We, we are in the midst of famine and there's this enemy approaching. We're done. There's no hope. We just need to pack it in. There's no hope for us here. And it seems inevitable. But yet, even through this passage, God still speaks to his people. And he says in Joel 2 verse 12, he says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. I love that line, yet even now. Even in the midst of all this calamity, even in the midst of all this pain and brokenness and suffering and just seeming like there's no hope, there's no chance for us, for, the, for this thing to turn around. Yet God still says, yet even now, return to me. Return to me with all of your heart, with weeping and mourning and fasting. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. He asks the people to get serious about this. And Joel, by the power of God's spirit, he calls his people to a fast. He calls his sacred assembly and he says, will we come together to seek the Lord, to cry out to him and to see and to ask him to move on our behalf, to cry out for mercy. And the people, to their credit, they do it. They respond to Joel's call and they come. They come to this assembly, they mourn and they repent. They, they don't just tear their garments as a religious show, they rend their hearts like God is asking them, as God has called for. And what we are going to look at with the rest of our time this morning is to see how God responds to his people when they do this. When people genuinely cry out to God in heartfelt repentance and sincerity, we see in this passage how God moves. And that begins at verse 18 of chapter 2. Verse 18 says this, Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. Again, this wasn't a religious show. This wasn't, you know, they weren't just putting on airs because they were in a tight spot. They were genuinely broken before God over their sin and over the devastation they had faced. And they cried out to him. And God responds. And he has jealousy for his people and he takes pity upon them. I want to look at these two words in verse 18 because I believe they convey so much of God's heart to us. The first word is the word jealous. In verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land. Now, the word in Hebrew is kana, and it means what you think it would mean. It means to be envy or to be jealous. And most of the time in the Old Testament, it's given in a negative uh, connotation, right? So there's examples throughout the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis, where, for example, you have the story of Joseph and Jacob, his father, has kind of been, he sort of played favorites with Joseph. And his older brothers are looking at Joseph with, with envy and disdain and bitterness. That's that word kana that shows up there. 
They're jealous over their brother Joseph. Or as well in the book of Genesis, we see how Rachel became envious of her sister Leah because Leah was able to conceive and bear a child, where at this point in the story, Rachel was not. She was envious. She was khna. And so lots of times throughout the Old Testament, it's a negative connotation with this word. It's, it's two people being envious of one another. But there's another way that the Old Testament uses this words, and it's describing how God feels towards someone or to something. Ezekiel 39, 25 says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. See here, God is promising to restore his people, to, to bring them back from the exile. And he's doing it because he's motivated by his mercy. He wants his people back, but it says he's jealous for his name. He's jealous that his name would be renowned and would be respected and would be honored amongst the nations. And this is part of the reason why he is, re he is rescuing these exiles back from captivity. Another passage in Zechariah chapter 1 says this, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. And so the angel spoke to me and said, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Did you catch that? The, the people of God have been in exile and captivity for 70 years. And in this place, they're just broken and desperate. And they say, how long is this going to take? When will you have mercy? And God responds and he says, I am exceedingly jealous for my people. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. You see, we can see in these passages here that God's jealousy is not like man's jealousy, which is rooted in selfishness and bitterness. When God is jealous for his people, it is a passionate longing to see them return back to himself. When they've wandered off and they've hurt themselves and they've, they've done all kinds of things wrong, there's this longing, this ache in the heart of God to see his children come back to him. It's like the longing of a parent when they see their kids grow up and they start making all kinds of poor choices. You know, as a parent, my kids are still at a young enough stage where, you know, I have a pretty, I have a lot of say in what they do and what they don't do. Right. And, and my hand of correction and discipline, you know, it's present. It's there because they're young. But there comes a point when kids grow up and they move out and they make their own decisions. And as a parent, you can't just give them a timeout at that stage of the game anymore. Right. You can't just give them a spanking and be like, stop doing that. It's like that doesn't work. They're adults. They've grown up and all you're left with is to sit there with this kind of ache and this longing inside of your heart, this pain that goes, I just wish they would do this differently. That's kind of like the jealousy of God for his people. He, he longs for them to return. He longs for them to, to, to knock some of these things off and like, guys, would you just come back to me? 
Would you stop feasting on these things that don't satisfy, that are completely empty? Would you come back to me? There is a, a jealousy and a longing that God has for his people to return to him. And the second word in this passage is the word pity. He took pity on his people. Again, the word in Hebrew is hamal, and it means to spare, to have compassion on, or to have mercy on someone. In the book of 2 Chronicles 36, we see the author recounting how God throughout history sent his people to prophets to teach them and to warn them, but how they stubbornly refused again and again. We see this in 2 Chronicles 36, 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Again, that word compassion here in, in verse 15, that's the same word hamal. And again, you can translate it compassion or pity. The Lord took compassion on his people. Now, these two words jumped out at me as I was preparing this message for this week. God's people are in the midst of a severe and devastating famine. And now there is this enemy on the horizon that is going to come in and potentially wipe them out. And, and, and you could imagine what that might feel like in that time of just utter desperation and devastation. But yet they pray. Yet they cry out to God. They repent. And this is how he responds. Again, I'm just sharing verse 8, verse 18 again. Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord became jealous. They cried out to him in repentance, and he becomes jealous. And that phrase struck me as I was studying this week. He became jealous. Now, I think it's a fair question to ask ourselves. Isn't God always jealous for his people? Isn't he, isn't he always jealous? Isn't this what he always wants? And I think that that's a fair question to ask. If you were with us over the summer, we did a series in the Ten Commandments, and we, we went through each of the commandments. And in the second commandment, God says, you shall have no other idols. You shall not make for yourselves any graven images, because I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Right? So it's a completely fair question to ask, isn't God always jealous for his people? And the answer 100% is yes. He is jealous for us all the time, absolutely. But this text says something a little bit different. It says he became jealous. He became jealous. The people, they cry out to God in heartfelt repentance, and they, they're, they're broken, and they cry out to him, and he becomes jealous. Prayer moves the heart of God. Prayer moves the heart of God. It simply does. There are things that would not happen if you didn't pray. There are things that just, they will not happen if you don't pray. 
That's how this works. Now, I understand completely there is bad theology out there that can say to itself, you know, if I just say the right words, if I just repeat them enough, if I just have enough faith, or if I name it and claim it, and I'm just, I'm going to put my foot down and be like, yes, I believe this, da, 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 da. I can back God into a corner, and then he has to do what, he, what I'm telling him to do. That's not at all what we're advocating. That's not at all what the scriptures teach. That's not what we're saying in any way, shape, or form. But I think that there is also an equal but opposite mistake at the other end of the spectrum that we can sometimes make when it comes to prayer. And that is this idea that we can think to ourselves that God's will is just fixed. It's inevitable. It's immovable. There's no changing it whatsoever. So why bother praying? Like, it's just fixed. It's just there. What, what will be what will be, right? It's going to be what it's going to be. You could imagine the people in Joel's day looking at a famine and looking at an incoming enemy invasion and go, I guess this is God's will. Like, I guess, this is just, I guess we're just done. There's no hope. So why bother praying? Now, I want to unpack this a little bit more. I understand there is a will of God that is fixed, that is final, and we have no say in that. God will it be done. And next week, Pastor Layton is going to unpack that more for us in chapter 3 when Joel gets into the final day of the Lord. And we're going to look at that next week. And that, that day of the Lord, that's fixed. There is coming a day where God will return. He will set all things to right. He will restore all things, and he will do away with evil forever. We're not going to change that day. But what we see happening in the book of Joel is that there's, that's the, can I call that, that's the capital D, day of the Lord, okay? That's the one final day of the Lord where God will set everything to rights. And we're not going to change that. God has fixed that. But there are these times, there are these moments throughout the scriptures where the scriptures do refer to these days as days of the Lord, where they're not totally fixed, where the outcome is not yet inevitable, where there is an opportunity where it could go in this direction or it could go in this direction. That's why God says to his people, even in the midst of all this calamity, he says, yet even now, return to me. Yet even now, return to me with all of your hearts. There is still an invitation that God is offering. And sometimes what can happen is I feel we can make the mistake where we look at our lives and we look at our circumstances and we feel completely overwhelmed and discouraged and we just look at it and we just go like, well, what's the use? Like, like what's the use? This is never going to change. This is never going to be any different. I guess this is just it for me, right? I, like, you can say to yourself things like, you know, I just want, I want to be free of this addiction. I have tried so many times again and again, and it just, I can't get free. I guess this is just it for me. I guess this is just is what it is. Or maybe you've seen, you're, you're sitting in a broken relationship and you say to yourself, it's never going to get fixed. I have tried so many times. It's just, this just is what it is. It's never going to get better. It's never going to be restored. It's never going to be reconciled. There's no hope. So why bother trying? 
Why bother trying to, to put any hope in or any stock in that? Or maybe you say to yourself, you know, my kid, they've, they've walked away from God. They've turned their back on the church. They're so bitter. They're so emboldened. They're never going to come back. So why, why bother? What's, what's, what's the use? And in that place, you can get stuck in patterns of unbelief and cynicism and hopelessness. And we think to ourselves, I guess that's just the way it is. I guess this is just my lot. I guess this is just as good as it's ever. I, I guess this is, there's, just, there's just no hope. It is not God's will that you stay locked in hopelessness. It is not. It is not God's will that you stay stuck in cycles of unbelief, in cynicism. It's not the will of God for you. You have been given the great dignity as a child of God, as a child of the King, to partner with God, to come together in the place of prayer and see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is this great invitation. Blaise Pascal, he says, he's a, he's a famous mathematician, but he was also a theologian. He says, God has bestowed upon his people the gift of prayer because in the gift of prayer, it is the dignity of causality. God has given his people the, a great gift in prayer, and that is the dignity of causality. Your prayers cause things to happen that would not happen if you did not pray. God's great dignity to you is in the place of prayer that your prayers actually affect things. Your prayers actually move things. Your prayers actually affect the course of history. And when you stay locked in cycles of unbelief and cynicism and just like, well, what's the point? This is hopeless. You, you abdicate your great opportunity to come to God in prayer and see history unfold according to his will. You say to yourself, I'm just stuck in this addiction. It's never going to get better. The Bible says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is the will of God that you be sanctified, holy, set apart as unto him, and to walk in the freedom that Jesus Christ paid for you. Addiction is not the end of your story. Addiction is not, well, this is just the will. No, it's not. It is for freedom Christ sets you free. You say to yourself, this relationship is just broken. It's never going to get better. God, the Bible says God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. That includes your broken relationships. That includes the marriage that is hanging on by a thread. That includes the, the, the distraught and the destructed families. No, God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. This includes the children who have walked away from God. This includes the people who are like, they, they've just abandoned the faith. They've turned their back on the church. They're never coming back. The Bible says that when that prodigal son is in the pit of despair and he's eating, he's, he's so hungry, he's longing, for the, he's longing for the pig food, he remembers his father's house. He remembers his father's house in that place. We tease, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he expects us to know what his will looks like. Because if you're going to walk in any level of authority and confidence, you need to know what the will of the father is so that you can pray it be done. 
Heaven looks like addictions being broken and seeing lives being restored and seeing marriages healed and seeing, seeing relationships reconciled and seeing prodigals come home. This is the will of God. And that is what we pray for. That is what we contend for. That is what we intercede for. Too many of us come to prayer with fatalism. We don't come with faith. Too many of us come with our preconceived notions. We've agreed with a spirit of unbelief and we just say, that's just the way it is. And we don't contend in faith. We don't align our hearts with the will of God and pray in the spirit of faith. We just resign ourselves. This is the way it will be. And we come with fatalism, not faith. I bet you any amount of money that on that day that Joel called a sacred assembly, there were a few people who showed up to there with some cynicism. I bet you there were a few people who were pretty discouraged. They were pretty distraught. They're in the middle of a famine. And the enemy is on the horizon. Like, where's the hope? There's no hope. We're destroyed. There's no, there's no hope for us. I bet you there were some cynical people who showed up to that fast that day. But they still came. They still came and they repented and they turned their hearts back towards God. And God responds to their prayers. God responds to their cries for mercy. And this is how he goes and he responds with a jealous compassion towards his people. Now let's continue on in the rest of the book with how he responds to his people. Verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 and 20. Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the foreigner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. The first way God responds to his people is to rescue them. He rescues them. They are devastated by crop failure. They're in a famine. And the first thing God does is he says, I'm sending you grain. I'm sending you wine. I'm sending you oil. I am, I am personally going to take it upon myself to see that your very real needs get met in this moment. You are dying of starvation. I'm going to meet you here. And he responds. And then he goes on and he says, I'm taking away your reproach. You've been shamed. You've been a laughingstock among the nations. I'm going to take away your shame. I'm going to restore to you your dignity. But then he goes on. He says, that enemy that's on the horizon, I'm going to push half of them to the desert and the other half into the sea. I'm going to rescue you. He's going to rescue his people. Now, you could say to yourself, that's amazing. Praise God. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 21 through 26. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. 
The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt, who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. The second way God responds to his people is to restore the land. He restores the land back to his people again. Now, I want you to notice something in in verse 25. In Joel chapter 1, as Joel is outlining what happened in this absolutely devastating famine, Joel chapter 1 verse 4, he says this, What the cutting locust left... The swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has eaten, the destroying locust has eaten, right? This, this famine has just been utterly devastating, wave after wave. And what does God say in verse 25? What does he say in verse 25? I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter. Did you notice that? All four of these massive invasions of locusts in chapter one, God says, I saw every one of those invasions and every single one I will restore to you. God knows what you have gone through. He knows what you have lost And it is in his heart and in his will that you would be restored. Psalm 56 verse 8 says this, You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What you have suffered and lost is not lost upon God. What you have suffered and lost is not lost upon God. He is the God of restoration, and one day he will put all to rights. And maybe we will see some of that here and now on this side of eternity, but we can take confidence that in eternity we will see all of that. Because God works together all things for, good, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen? But this passage doesn't stop there. <laughs> You say, that's too, like, you've rescued them, God. You've restored the land. Like, you're so, like, that's amazing. And he doesn't stop there. He's overwhelming with his goodness. The passage continues. Verse 28. Oh, sorry, verse 27 through 32. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls." The third and final way that God responds to his people is to promise them that he will reside 
with them, and he will pour out his spirit upon them. God's longing is to be with his people. From Genesis to Revelation, it is clear again and again that his intention is to be with us. He wants to reside with us. And on Joel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sees a day coming. He sees this day coming where God, in his glory and his goodness, he's going to pour out his spirit upon his people. And the good news is we don't have to wait to know when that's going to happen because it has already taken place. In the book of Acts chapter 2, the church is gathered together and they're praying. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit descends upon them like a mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire like appear, appear above them and they begin to speak in other languages, telling everybody about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And during all of this, as this is happening, the, the Apostle Peter, he stands up in the congregation and he says this in Acts 2. Men of Judea and all living in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall, shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Peter sees this moment happening right in front of his eyes and he says, this is what Joel was talking about. This is what Joel was talking about. It's happening right here and now. This is what Joel was saying would happen, would come to pass, and now it's come. It's here. Something powerful happens when the Spirit of God comes upon a community. Joel says, your sons and your daughters, they'll prophesy. Men and women will both be able to hear God's voice and speak that truth out. He says that, he says that your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. I love that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love this picture that a younger generation would get captivated by a vision of who God is and believe in their hearts. God wants to do that in our generation. And who would catch a vision that's bigger than what this world has to offer that just says, just get a job and settle down and, you know, don't, get, don't be too worried about getting all excited about Jesus. No, no. They, they get captured by a vision of something greater than themselves. And they give themselves with wholehearted consecration and devotion to see that vision come to pass. I love that when the Spirit of God comes. But then I also love this, older, this picture of the older generation, too. And they begin to dream again. I love the thought that a generation that is tired, that is worn out, that is broken, that is just, it's just tired and weary. I love that when the Spirit of God comes upon those people, they begin to dream again. They begin to have hope and courage of a future. They don't resign themselves to just say, I retired, boom, I'm living the dream. No, they dream a dream again. They begin to dream God's dreams and they say, it doesn't matter what age I am, I am going to run with passion and devotion. I am going to run the race that Christ has set before me till my time is done and I run straight into his presence. I love that vision. 
Your young men will see, will, will get a vision. Your old men will dream dreams. It's this beautiful picture of God coming and doing a new thing. And God can still do that again. God responds to the prayers of his people and he responds by rescuing them. He responds by restoring them and he responds by residing with them and saying, I'm going to give you my spirit. All these ways God responds to his people are because that's who he is. That's who he is. He rescues them from the famine and the enemy because he's the rescuer. The psalmist says God is our salvation. He's the rescuer. He restores what was lost to them because he's the restorer. He brings beauty out of brokenness. That's what he does. And he resides with them because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He chooses to be with us. That's who he says he is. And this is a great comfort to us because, because even in the midst of pain and sorrow and trials, we can put our faith that this is who God says he is. I don't know what the outcome will be. I don't know exactly how it's all going to turn out, but I can have faith and I can have confidence that this is who my God says he is, so that's how I'm going to pray. And that's how I'm going to invest, and that's how I'm going to live into this reality. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and as they do that, I just want to remind you all that, that the front here at the altar, it is open. If you would like prayer for anything, if there's something heavy on your mind or on your chest that you need, to, you need to pray with someone about, you need to confess something, we have staff available up front here and we would love to be able to pray with you or to pray for you. Whatever that looks like, we just invite you to do that as we close this song. But let me pray before we, we jump into our last song here. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures, Holy Spirit, that you have inspired to be written and how you have taken great care throughout the centuries that we may have access to it. What a privilege. Thank you, God. We ask you, Holy Spirit, wherever we're at today, whatever we're facing, God, that we would know you are the God who responds. Your word says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Your word says, cry out to me, with, seek me and find me. Your word says, seek me with all of your heart and you will be found by me. And God, we ask that you would move our hearts to be fully yielded to you, to seek you, because we can with confidence say, when we seek you with all of our hearts, we will take you at your word and we will find you. We ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting at verse 13. God says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land. Hmm, sound familiar? Or I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is what we want to do tonight as we gather together for our night of worship. We want to take God at his word and ask him to do what only he can do. 
But in order for God to do what he can only do, he asks us to do what only we can do. He asks us to humble ourselves, to repent, to fast, to, to rend our hearts and not our garments. And so we invite you to come tonight, not because the church is, in, is doing a thing, but because we need God to move in our nation. We need God to move in our city. We need God to move in our churches. And so we're asking you, would you consider coming? Would you consider coming and crying out to God together to ask for his mercy to move on our behalf? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Blessings to you on the rest of your Sunday. We hope to see you out this evening and hope you have an awesome rest of your afternoon. God bless you.